The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That prophecy of Ezekiel has become reality in our generation. The story of Israel is part of the ministry of the Jerusalem Channel. On this historic 70th anniversary of the rebirth of Israel, please consider making a special gift to continue our media ministry through our website, the Jerusalem Channel app, or by mail. Welcome to Nazareth, the boyhood home of Jesus in Galilee, where the angel Gabriel announced to the Virgin Mary that she was highly favored to become the mother of the Messiah. The drama of salvation happened right on God's schedule. First the announcement to Mary of the incarnation, and then Jesus' sacrificial death in Jerusalem as the Passover lamb. And now, we're waiting for His second coming as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But even after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, in Acts 22.8, He still referred to Himself as Jesus of Nazareth. And in today's broadcast, we're happy to report some prophetic developments here in Nazareth. And so we'll ask the question posed in John chapter 1. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And as the disciple Philip replied, come and see. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg and welcome to Nazareth, the boyhood home of Jesus. We're watching sunrise over the Church of the Annunciation, the largest basilica in the Middle East, that was built over the traditional grotto home of the Virgin Mary. It was in this vicinity that the angel Gabriel was sent by God to announce that Mary was highly favored and chosen by God to give birth to the Messiah. To reflect Middle Eastern culture, the basilica's black roof structure was designed to imitate a Bedouin tent. And the tent design is also symbolic of John 1.14 which declares that Jesus, the Word of God, became flesh and tabernacled among us. On top of the tent roof is a cross and also a lighthouse design, reminding us that Jesus is the light of the world. The lighthouse shines from dusk to dawn, and so at some point as the sun rises over Nazareth, you might see the light go out. Well, according to some traditions, Gabriel appeared to Mary while she was drawing water at the town well, which is further down the street. But we do know the essential facts recorded in the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 1, the messenger angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she would be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and she would conceive in her womb and bear the Son of God. 
an event known as the Annunciation, the announcement of the Lord's incarnation. Furthermore, Gabriel specifically instructed Mary to name her son Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, meaning Yehovah is salvation. Gabriel also promised that God would give Mary's son the throne of his father David and a prophecy that's yet to be fulfilled. But it will be fulfilled at the Lord's second coming when Jesus will sit on the ancestral throne of King David. But first, Jesus had to come as God's salvation to bear the sins of the world at Golgotha as the Lord's suffering servant, the Lamb of God. Although Mary was betrothed at the time to Joseph, she submitted to the plan of God, saying, Behold, the handmaiden of the Lord, let it be unto me according to thy word. Matthew 1.20 also gives us this important detail. An angel of the Lord also appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, while Nazareth is well known for the imposing basilica, less known are the fascinating excavations under the convent of the Sisters of Nazareth, just across the street from the basilica. The excavations at the relatively unknown site have revealed a first century house now thought to be the home where Jesus was nurtured and brought up by Mary and Joseph. The house is partly made of mortar and stone walls and was cut into the rocky hillside. These excavations are slowly being recognized as the house where the Holy Family settled. And nearby is a tomb of the Just One of Nazareth, believed to be the tomb of St. Joseph. Archaeologists claim that the site matches descriptions of a house in a tomb that were venerated by pilgrims from antiquity. Well, in Jesus' day, Nazareth was just a backwater, a seemingly insignificant town of Galilee. And that's why Jesus' disciple Nathanael had asked, Can anything good come out of this place? Today, Nazareth is two cities. The Basilica is at the heart of the old city, where most of the Arab residents live. And Upper Nazareth is a new Jewish neighborhood, founded only in 1957, overlooking the old city and the Jezreel Valley. In the 1990s, Upper Nazareth was Israel's fastest developing city, with a growth rate of nearly 70%. Newcomers included immigrants from the former Soviet Union and South America. Old Nazareth is known as the Arab capital of Israel. Its inhabitants are predominantly Muslim, but about 31% are culturally Christian. Now, as to the meaning of the city's name, there are many viewpoints. One view holds that the name Nazareth is derived from one of the Hebrew words for branch, namely Netzer. This would allude to the prophetic and messianic words found in Isaiah chapter 11, prophesying that from Jesse's roots, Jesse being the father of King David, a branch, Netzer, will bear fruit. Alternatively, the name may derive from the verb nasar, meaning to watch, 
guard or to keep, perhaps implying that the town was perched like a watchtower on a hill. In the New Testament, believers in Yeshua are referred to as followers of the way. And according to Acts 11.26, they were first called Christians at Antioch. But in order to disassociate them from the word Christ, meaning Messiah, the anointed one, Jewish opponents of the way referred to Christians also as Nazarenes. For example, in Acts chapter 24, a lawyer was hired by Jewish religious leaders to oppose the Apostle Paul as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Scholars say the Greek term for Nazarene has continuity with the Hebrew word Notzrim. Notzrim is both the rabbinic and modern Hebrew name for Christians. While Notzrim is thought by some to be derived from Nazareth, also others connect Notzrim with the Netzarim, the watchmen on the hills of Ephraim, mentioned in Jeremiah 31.6. That intriguing verse says, There is coming a day when watchmen will cry out on the hills of Ephraim, Come, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. And I find it interesting that there are many Notzrim Christians today working as volunteers on those mountains in biblical Samaria. By the way, Nasrani is the word used by Christians in the Quran. And thus we've seen the Arabic letter for N scrawled on homes of Christians to mark them for persecution by jihadists. Also an ancient community of Jewish Christians in India, the St. Thomas Christians trace their origins to the missionary exploits of the apostle. And even today, they're known by the name Nasiranis. Well, I've only scratched the semantical surface because there's also an ongoing discussion and confusion between the words Nazarene and the vow of a Nazarite, first mentioned in the Torah concerning the vows of a person dedicated and consecrated to God. But don't forget, of course, that Jesus wasn't born here in Nazareth. A person may live in one town, but have been born elsewhere. For example, I was born in the American state of Georgia, but I'm also from Richmond, Virginia, from Hereford, England, and from Jerusalem, Israel, and so forth. And Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem. He had to be born in Bethlehem because both his mother as well as his legal father, Joseph, were descendants of King David. And in the providence of God, Caesar decreed that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And so everyone went to their own town to register. And while they were in Bethlehem for the census, Mary gave birth in the fullness of time to her firstborn and placed him in a manger, in a stable, a sukkah, because no lodging was available for them. Think about that precise timing of God, engineering the fulfillment of the prophecy in Micah 5.2, which says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you're small amongst the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from everlasting. 
According to the Gospel of Matthew, the Holy Family made a sudden escape from Bethlehem into Egypt, where they were refugees hiding from the wicked King Herod, who had wanted to kill Jesus. After news of Herod's death, the family resettled again in the relative safety of Nazareth. So God saw it that Jesus was brought up in obscurity and hidden until his time to be revealed. And that's why Nathanael had asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, on this pilgrimage, we discovered many prophetic good things coming once again out of Nazareth. One thing I find infinitely fascinating about coming here to Nazareth in the 70th year of Israel's reestablishment is that there are more archeological discoveries and with the passing of time within the new Jewish state, Providence is reclaiming the Jewishness of Jesus and his mother. Not that they were ever Gentiles, but through the centuries, the church has given the false impression that somehow Jesus wasn't Jewish. Of course, he's forever the lion of the tribe of Judah and great David's greater son. In fact, Jesus said in John 4:22 that salvation comes through the Jews. But through the centuries, as the church became dominated by Gentiles and there were only a comparative smattering of Jewish believers, the church unfortunately forgot its Hebraic roots. But today, Thankfully, there's a movement to recover the Hebraic roots of our faith, and here in Nazareth, it's happening. One of the historic places that we visited was a recently excavated underground cave revealing a Jewish mikveh, a ritual bath not far from Mary's well, where it's quite possible that Mary herself would have been immersed to achieve ritual purity. Also, at a beautiful new ecumenical center, we enjoyed staging our ministry's 21st prophetic Passover Seder. The center is located next to the Basilica and offers a stunning multimedia presentation about the Holy Family. And one of the first things our guide at the center emphasized was that Mary was selected by God to be the mother of the Messiah because she was literate. She was especially knowledgeable in the Torah. You see, tradition based upon early church writings suggests that Mary was no ordinary uneducated girl, but she had been brought up in the temple in Jerusalem where she was prepared by God to teach the Savior. In fact, the Proto-Evangelium of James is the source of many Christian Orthodox beliefs concerning Mary. It's also called the Gospel of James. It's an apocryphal gospel written about AD 145, purportedly by James, the brother of Jesus, and it's the oldest source outside the New Testament to assert the virginity of Mary as a consecrated virgin. Ancient manuscripts that preserve the book have different titles such as the birth of Mary or the revelation of James. The account claims that Mary's parents, St. Joachim and St. Anne, were childless, but they received a heavenly message that they would have a child. And in thanksgiving for the birth of their daughter, 
they decided to consecrate Mary to God. And so they brought her at age three to the temple in Jerusalem. Later versions of the account, such as the Gospel of the Nativity of Mary, relate that she was taken to the temple at age three in fulfillment of a parental vow. Mary's presentation in the temple draws parallels to the childhood of the prophet Samuel, whose mother Hannah, like Anne, was also thought to be barren. But in thanksgiving to God, Hannah offered her child Samuel as a gift to God's service in the tabernacle at Shiloh. And so it's believed that Mary's parents did the same by bringing her to the temple. Isn't that fascinating? In my research, I found a lot of artwork of Mary being blessed by the high priest on the temple steps. So you see, according to tradition, Mary didn't start out as a Catholic saint, but she was an anointed Jewish girl brought up in the knowledge of God's Torah in the temple itself. According to these traditions celebrated in the apostolic churches, but unfortunately hardly ever mentioned in the Reformed Protestant churches, Mary remained in the temple until she was 12 years old, at which time she was assigned to Joseph as a guardian husband. Well, it's from these extra-biblical accounts that the annual feast arose called Mary's Presentation in the Temple. The tradition is celebrated in the Eastern churches and in the Roman Catholic Church. But the Reformed churches may dismiss the fascinating tradition of Mary's presentation in the temple. But I like it about Mary living in the temple because it emphasizes her Jewishness and it suggests that the upbringing of the Messiah was granted to a woman steeped in the Torah. Well, there's a fascinating church speaking of the Torah, called the Synagogue Church here in Nazareth. It's also located behind me in the Old City. It's one of the remarkable churches that we rediscovered on our walking tour through the Spice Market near the Basilica. According to tradition, the church is built on the ruins of the ancient Nazareth Synagogue where Jesus studied and prayed every Sabbath. And of course, one Sabbath day, Jesus read the scriptures pertaining to himself. In two gospel accounts, in Matthew 13 and Mark 6, his fellow Nazarenes reacted with anger. Because he was one of them, they didn't trust him to have the authority to preach and to perform miracles. He was amazed at their lack of faith, and he concluded that a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. Luke chapter 4 adds more details. Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah, known to us as chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And at first the congregants are pleased. He read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And at that point, Jesus rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all eyes in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he essentially declared himself to be the Messiah by saying, 
This day, the scripture is fulfilled in your ears. But in his commentary, his listeners became infuriated. They rejected his commentary and tried to throw him from the town's precipice. But it wasn't the time, the place, or the way for Jesus to forfeit his life. And so he simply walked through the crowd and disappeared. Well, knowing the Hebraic roots of Jesus, it's a precious occasion to visit the synagogue church, remembering that he came on his first mission to earth only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. While approaching the synagogue church, we saw the usual souvenirs for sale, but also hanging there was a solitary prayer shawl, emblematic of the fringe robe that Jesus wore as a son of Israel. Do you recall the healing of the woman with the issue of blood who sneaked up on Jesus behind him just to touch the fringe of his garment? And Jesus had turned around and asked, who touched me? And trembling, she owned up. But he said, daughter, go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Well, we enjoyed a time of worship with the Jewish prayer shawl in the Lord's synagogue church. And you just have to come with us to experience the joy of the Bible in its geographic setting in the land of Israel. Scholars describe the years of Jesus working in Joseph's carpentry shop as his hidden life or the silent years. But I'm also happy to tell you that good things are still coming out of Nazareth. There's a movement of local Christians who, for the first time, are joining the Israeli army in order to give back to the country that protects them in an otherwise very hostile region of the world where Christians have been persecuted in the surrounding nations. Many of these Arabic-speaking Christians are divorcing themselves from the Ottoman Islamic culture that was forced upon them, and they're changing their nationality to Israeli Arameans rather than calling themselves Arabs or Palestinians. In fact, in 2014, the Israeli government officially registered Aramean Christians as a national identity group within the land of Israel. So people born into Christian families who can speak the Aramaic language or who have Aramaic cultural heritage became eligible to register as Arameans and to forego the Arabic identity connected to Islam. There are now at least four groups of Israeli Christians who consider themselves to be Arameans, and they're seeking to integrate indigenous Christians into Israeli society. These Christians who are congregating under the prayer shawl of the Israeli flag are going against the tide of political correctness by proudly serving in the army, as well as other security sectors of Israeli society. And there are Christians in every level of Israeli society, including, for example, a member of the Supreme Court. And Father Gabriel Nadoff, a Greek Orthodox priest and father of Christians serving in the Israel Defense Forces, was the first Aramean Christian to be honored by Israel to light a memorial torch on Israel's Independence Day. 
So what do all of these Christians have in common spiritually? Besides their faith in the Messiah, many of them are recognizing that the hand of God himself has brought the Jewish people back to the promised land, and they're willing to integrate with Israelis and lend a supporting hand and brotherly affection to the Jewish people. Essentially, you know what they're doing? They're following the advice of Mary, who said in John 2, 5, Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Mary first spoke that command to do what Jesus says to the servants at a marriage feast in a nearby town called Cana. Do you recall that Bible episode? It's found in John chapter 2. Jesus and his disciples were attending a wedding, and toward the end of the celebration, the wine ran out. And so it came into Mary's mind that Jesus could demonstrate his power. Jesus mildly reproved his mother, saying, Woman, and that's no term of disrespect, but it was the language of the day. Dear woman, what have I to do with you? My hour hasn't yet come. You see, from now on, he was gently letting Mary know that he didn't have to submit to her. Woman is the same title that Jesus used to address Mary from the cross. But at this happy occasion, Jesus was saying to his mother, what is there now in common with you and me? In other words, he was asserting his independence. Yet, there must have been something unspoken in the way he looked at her because Mary perceived she could go ahead with her plan. Because running out of wine was an embarrassing situation. So Mary said to the servants, Whatsoever he says to do, do it. The commentaries remind us that the beginning of Moses' miracles was a judgment, turning water into blood. But in nearby Cana, the beginning of Jesus' miracles was a blessing at a wedding, turning water into wine. And the wedding steward said it was the best wine saved to the last. Now think about that. Jesus' first public ministry was at a wedding. And from this we learn that matrimony is blessed by God and shouldn't be forbidden in the churches. Mary said to the servants, whatsoever he says, do it. Notice the command to do whatsoever he asks, because his authority in our lives should be without question. We must do whatever Jesus asks us, cheerfully, anywhere, and at any time he requires, because we're not our own. If we belong to him, we've been bought with a price. We've been purchased with his own sinless, precious blood. So dare we say, like the prophet Samuel, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And he will speak to us mainly through his word, but often through circumstances and sometimes even through an audible voice. And then it's our duty to trust Him and to obey Him. It's often been said that delayed obedience is disobedience, but obedience is the hallmark of a true believer. After all, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you don't do what I say? And so the test of genuine love, Jesus said, is if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So now to wrap up, I'm so happy to report that Jesus is the same today. Good things are still coming out of his hometown. 
We've held very positive gospel meetings here in the past with healings and salvations. And there's a new generation of faith as the time of the Lord's second coming draws near. And some brave Israeli Christians are joining themselves to the house of Israel and serving together in the army. And here in the town of the Holy Family, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are being increasingly reclaimed as native Israelites. So let's heed the admonition of Mary today and do whatever Jesus tells us. After all, Jesus commands all of us to repent and to believe on Him and to put our trust exclusively in Him as the Savior of the world. Amen. Well, you can contact me through the social media and at our website, exploits.tv, where we invite you to sign up for the Jerusalem Club and to receive our weekly updates in Color Exploits magazine. And don't forget to download our Jerusalem Channel app. And so until next time, always contending for the faith and praying for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Dark, Maranatha, and Shalom. <laughs>